follow along with me, if you will, as I read from John 15, verses 9 through 16. We're starting right in the middle of what Jesus had left off with last week. Starting at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. A short prayer of thanks to the Lord for his word. Father, command what you will, grant what you command, by your spirit's power and for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, as I said, we are in the middle of what Jesus began speaking last week, But it was important for us to break in verse 8, if you'll look back at that for a moment. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That's where we stopped last week. We're looking at John 15 in three sections. Verses 1 through 8 was just that, that we would abide and bear fruit, that we would abide and grow. Now this week, as we move forward in verse 9, we're coming to the next abiding, and that is abiding in the love of Christ. For further background here, though, uh, through the, the bigger section of John 13, 14, and 15, if you remember two chapters ago, we see Jesus expressing his love to his disciples. Do you remember what he did for them at the start of this last evening? What was it? He washed the feet of the disciples. And who did that include? Judas. Even his enemy, even the one who would betray him, even the one whom he sent out. He expressed the love of God to his enemies. Then in continuing on to John 14, we have the comforting. We have in the beginning, if you remember, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. They're very troubled at what he said. He's going away. They're all going to fall away. What are they going to do? Don't be troubled. Remember, everything I've taught you, the Holy Spirit is coming. He's going to be your helper. He's going to remind you of all the things that I've taught you. And then in John 15, he introduces this new illustration of who he is. He calls himself the true what? The true vine. And we being... Branches, excellent, you remember. Christ himself is the true vine. We are the branches connected to the vine. Not in and of ourselves do we create fruit, but we bear fruit 
based on what the vine provides us nutrient-wise. He gives us life. He gives us the presence of God. He gives us everything we need for holy living, to bear fruit that reflects the nature of the vine. Now he'll continue that illustration in our passage today as he commands to abide in his love. Now the transition here from that metaphor of, of, you, of Jesus being the vine, us being the branches, and that branches are, are pruned so that they might bear more fruit and false branches are taken away and thrown into a pile and burned because they're not truly connected to the vine, Jesus is now moving to explaining the parable a little bit more. He's, he's unpacking the metaphor for us in today's passage. In a sense, what he's doing for his disciples is sort of passing off new house keys to us. He's kind of saying, here's what your life abiding in me is going to look like. Here's what that metaphor really means. Come and live in this kind of situation, being healthy and true branches attached to the true vine. In verses 9 through 11, we see Christ bringing his disciples into the love and joy of the Father. If you would look down at your Bibles with me again. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus doesn't simply say, I love you. He says, as the Father loves me, I love you. This is what the love, the, the source of the love of Christ for his disciples truly is. It is the love that the Father has for the Son, a perfect, sinless, unbreaking, always and forever love expressed between Father and Son. In verse 10 then, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now remember, this is not Jesus saying, now here are the conditions, here's your part that you must play in order to become a part of this loving relationship between the Father and the Son. He has not only invited his disciples, but he has brought his disciples into the love relationship of the Father and the Son. And when he says then, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, it's important for us to take that in the context of everything he said. If this is already true, what he's not saying then by us keeping our commandments and therefore abiding in the love of Christ is that commandments, commandment keeping are prerequisite to abiding in love. It is untrue. That is a works-based salvation, isn't it? If you want me to love you, do what I command you. Obey. No, he's saying that the one who abides in the love of the Father and the Son will therefore, because of, and I know I'm probably being repetitive on this, but it's essential. Because if we don't understand the gospel, we're going to live as though the opposite of this is true. Christ only loves me when I do the things that please him. That is not true. We will never be able to accomplish that. He welcomes us into, not just invites us into, the love relationship between the Father and the Son. These things I have spoken to you, here's the purpose in verse 11, if you look, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is not a joy of our own accomplishment. It is a rejoicing in the accomplishment of Christ. And it is not a joy that we manufacture, it is a joy that we come into. If you'll remember back to chapter 14, verse 28, 
Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. The Father is greater than I. There is joy in the love relationship between the Father and the Son. It is a necessary kind of joy to be in that relationship. You can't truly love, at least to the degree that the Father and the Son love each other, apart from true joy. In verses 12 through 14, then we see the command of Christ is repeated because, boy, did you hear it again today in verse 12? This is my commandment. Maybe before you even looked at the next phrase, you knew what that was going to be, didn't you? Sunday school popped into your head. This is my commandment that you... Okay, Sarah, you don't have to sing it, but I knew you would. That you love one another, the shortening of this, that you love one another, that your... Do you remember? Joy may be full. What a great mystery for us to consider that God cares about your joy. Do you ever get the idea that God's just kind of up there going like, well, you're disobeying me, so I don't really care what you're doing. I don't really care about you right now. You're supposed to be loving me. What's wrong with you? Do you ever consider that there's a moment that God looks down on your life and says, there's no joy there. I want there to be joy in your life. That's not to say that God's main mission is to get your best life now. It's not that God is so concerned that everything goes well, but that he wants you to experience a deeper joy than any circumstances that you face. And that is in the context of this passage too. Because where is Jesus going this very night? To the cross. And he says, as he's on his way to the cross, I said I'm going away. You would have rejoiced if you loved me because I'm going to the Father. What a great duality of perspective to have. Jesus looks at the cross and he says, I'm going to my Father. Yeah, it's not as though he's blind to the suffering he's going to endure, right? We know that from other passages and we'll see that soon enough. But he equates going to the cross with also going to the Father. That is, again, church, where the Father is going to pour out all of his wrath against your sin on Jesus at the cross. And Jesus is going joyfully. Granted, it is a mixture of joy and sorrow, but joy is ever-present there. He knows, even after enduring the wrath of the Father, he knows that he will embrace the joy of his father. So this is my commandment that you love one another. Greater love has no one than this. So the command is repeated and the the example is foreshadowed. Christ doesn't die just as our example. Now this is what I can say from my own testimony of growing up in church. If you would have asked me before I came to Christ around 17 or 18, if you would have asked me why did Jesus die, I would have left it at to show us how much he loves us basically saying it was an example. Basically to say, Jesus shows us how we should act towards each other. Now, yes or no, is that true? Does the cross show us the kind of love we should have for each other, church? Yeah, it does. It's the basis of the love that we are supposed to have for each other. It's the basis of how we abide in the full joy of Christ's love through obedience. It's to look at what Jesus does at the cross and say, My life has to reflect that in some way. Not necessarily literally, 
but that my mindset would be the mindset of the one who says, I'm going for the joy set before me to obey my Father, to love my people and lay down my life. So he says again, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And this is where that great transition comes into. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. Why? What is it that sets apart a servant and a friend? Because the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. You should go and bear friends, that your fruit, or bear fruit, sorry, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Christ makes us his friends by revealing his plan to us. And so we can say from this passage that abiding in his love results in obedience, and his disciples rejoice in the love of Christ. Abiding in his love results in obedience and rejoicing in the love of Christ. So I'd ask you this morning to start at the end of that train of love, obedience, and joy. Do you have the joy of Christ this morning? Notice how Jesus describes joy in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that whose joy? What does he say? My joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. And this just reminds me of a student that I had once whose name was My Joy. Not just Joy, it was My Joy. And so every time you talked to her, it kind of felt like, my, is your name Joy or is it My Joy? It was a little bit confusing, but she was a sweet girl. And, and it was interesting for me to consider what is it that causes a parent to name their kid My Joy? Unless that's exactly how they see them. Right, And that there is a sense that in every mentioning of that name, you get the idea, whether you're, you know, whether you're in class or you're home or whatever, if you're named something like my joy, your name always refers back to someone who rejoices in you, who puts their joy in you. And that's what Christ has done for us. Not to say that Jesus has been like, man, you know, I really just need to create some people because I don't have any joy. When he puts his joy in us, he doesn't say, you are the thing that brings me joy. He's saying, I'm bringing my joy to you. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy, having the joy of Christ, may be full. So do you have the joy of Christ this morning? Not just joy in Christ that you've created on your own, but a sense that you are participating in the joy of God a weighty question to consider our position in christ our theme again as we go through john 15 is in christ our position our righteousness being his alone our way of communicating with the father in prayer as we just did before we came to this word is in christ you you know you're standing in christ when you bow your head and say father and make your requests known to him you're standing in the righteous standing that Christ has, he has shared it with you. And that is the source of our joy. The love that the Father and the Son share pours out into our lives through the presence of the Spirit. Motivation for obedience, then, is not, I need to find or create that love or find or create that joy, but obedience comes second in line. Abide in my love, he says first. Then he talks about obedience. Not obey so that I'll love you, 
but obey because I love you. This is the gospel. And when we do not obey Christ, we're proving something that we haven't actually received. We're proving that we haven't received something, rather, pardon me. So our conflict this morning then, Jesus shows us in this passage that loveless branches are disobedient branches. And they're disobedient branches not because they haven't generated the fruit of love on themselves, but because they haven't been abiding in the love of Christ. Now, in the Talmud, if you're familiar at all with the Talmud, it's a collection of rabbinic writings and teachings. There's this fascinating story. It was written by a rabbi. I'm going to tell you that it didn't actually happen. Um, I I don't know. There's a lot of interesting things to study in this. But um, in the Talmud, there's a story about a man who wanted to understand eternity a little bit better. So he goes to God and he says, show me what hell is like. So God says, okay. And this is how you know this didn't really happen, right? Because, I mean, how many times have you done this, right? Show me what heaven is like. Show me anything. And God says, read your Bible, you goofball. Um, At least that's what I get most of the time. In this parable, in this story, God reveals to this man a table around which all, all these men are sitting, and they're all very skinny, they're all gaunt, they're all starving, and in the center of the table is this beautiful stew with all the nutrients, all the food that they could ever want in this stew, and they're all given these extremely long spoons. Have you ever heard this before? And they're to dip the spoon into the stew, but the spoon's too long for them to reach their mouths. It's all the way out here. So they're all starving because they can't feed themselves. And this is the picture in, in a sort of you know, Greek mythological kind of way of what punishment in hell looks like. It's not a literal Bible interpretation, but it's an interesting story because it proves to us that it's easier for us to abide in the love of the vine as we consider it just being a nutrition to ourselves, as we consider ourselves as the end goal. Feed me. If Christ can do that, that will bring me joy. Because what is my greatest joy apart from Christ? It's myself. I want to be satisfied. I want to be full. I need what I need. And so we forget entirely that we are branches connected to a vine amongst other branches as well. So it's easier to abide in the love of the vine if the vine is only feeding us than to actually bear the fruit of love towards other branches we're with. Now, this is interesting because Jesus' transition that happens in the end of chapter 14, if you'll go back and look one more time in verse 31, I say one more time, I'll probably reference it again next week, but it's good for us to remember at the end of of chapter 14, verse 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. You see his purpose in there in verse 31. But then there's this strange saying here. Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. It's one of the few breaks that you get to kind of remember, oh, this is actually going on. You know, there's, he's sitting there with his disciples and now they're all getting up and leaving. And it's interesting because now Jesus transitions into talking not about the comfort that he talked about in chapter 14 or the example that he showed in 13, but the commissioning of his disciples. So in verse 16 of our passage from today in chapter 15, 15, 16, I chose you you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Jesus is already alluding to the mission. I love it when feedback happens because somebody inevitably goes, whoa. It's awesome. 
But Jesus is talking about the mission of his people. And that in that mission, there's a basis of obeying this commandment that you love one another. Now, remember here too, do we need to love people who are not Christians? Yes or no? Yes, that's an easy question, right? Is that what he's talking about in this passage? Not quite. Thank you for answering. <laughs> he's not actually talking about loving non-believers. First, he's talking about loving believers. Now, it's essential that we do love people who don't know Christ because that is the means by which God is appointed for them to find out, excuse me, find out who Christ is. Feedback in my own voice now. <clears throat> But in this context, particularly, he's saying that you love one another. And that love is going to be the same love that we abide in in Christ and that we express to the lost as well. But it looks a little bit different, doesn't it? Within the church walls or within the church life, to be a little more specific. Jesus is talking about what he's already said, that, that the world is going to recognize something about the way not only one person loves, person A loves person B within the church, but also the way person B loves person A, that there is a reciprocating of this love, that there's love going back and forth between the disciples of Christ. And so it is important to our mission that we walk in love together, that we abide in the love of Christ. Now, our problem, again, why we sometimes feel like and, and look like loveless branches is because there are seasons or there are moments of lovelessness that make it seem that we have alternative vines to connect to, that there's an alternative vine besides the true vine. And again, we're, we're drawing this conflict from what Jesus has said because we have to ask the question, why is it that I can't just do this? Why is it that abiding in the love of Christ seems difficult sometimes? And when we go back through the teachings of Christ and we see, again, at the beginning of John 15, when he says, I am the true vine, we can kind of make an assumption that there are false vines that we might convince ourselves are true. We might convince ourselves that there is a vine I can connect to that's going to love me and that's going to bring me the joy that my heart truly seeks. You know, when you sign up for something, you have to read the terms and conditions, right? Right? And none of you do. I don't. Partially because how easy is it when the terms and conditions show up, right underneath it are, I agree to the terms and conditions. There's that huge box with the six-point font that you can scroll through. I would love to know if any of you actually do this, but don't raise your hands. I don't want to embarrass anyone. But you could read the terms and conditions of what you're agreeing to. But if you're signing up for Netflix, you're thinking... I'm getting Netflix. That's all there is to it, right? Okay. Or I'm signing up for whatever, for an email to be sent to me every Thursday. I, I get on the surface level, but why do they have all these terms and conditions? We don't actually read those terms and conditions because we want to jump over to what that thing's going to give us. And we say, hey, look, as long as you give me this thing, I'm going to be happy. See, what the world would like to do is have us skip over those terms and conditions the context of the joy that the world wants to offer. The, the basic message of our culture today is if it feels good, what? Do it. It's like a twisting of Nike's catchphrase. If it feels good, do it. Why? There's an assumption that there will be joy in the embracing of whatever my desire says I truly want. Not reading the terms and conditions. 
of the joy that's offered. And in whatever other source you look to to be that true vine in your life, there are terms and conditions, and they're all the same. Because if we're not connected to the true vine, we're connected to a false vine, and that false vine is just going to lead us to death. It's going to lead us to fruitlessness. And we know that the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Not life, not abiding, not love, not joy, not fruitfulness, but death. If we abide in anywhere besides Christ, we will be loveless and disobedient branches. And we know from last week's passage what happens. God the Father, the vine dresser, comes in and he takes away any branch that's not bearing fruit, throws it into the fire. Because it's proven that it's not truly connected to the vine. It may be amongst the branches that are connected to the vine, but it's seeking a different joy. It's seeking a different source. Why else do we not love our brothers and sisters in Christ? There's a lot of things. There's that active one that I just mentioned of looking for another vine. But there's also the fact that there is church hurt in our lives. There are insecurities and doubts that we deal with. There are things that we have to say like, man, it's not always so easy to love somebody. And you can't just put a blanket statement over everybody and say, oh, I can trust and love and appreciate and spend time with all these people. Because we don't really know each other. We might have things in our past that say, the last time I trusted somebody in church, something terrible happened. We might have the insecurity of saying, maybe I can't actually do anything right on my own anyway, so what do I have to offer somebody else if I'm supposed to walk in the love of Christ? Well, we may just have the simple doubt of whether this is truly necessary. And part of that is because, I'd say a small part, because it's really a matter of the heart, but think about how we do church life. You all see each other on Sunday morning. And whenever this guy stops talking, you go out the door. And I know many of you see each other outside of Sunday morning. But just think about the base level commitment that, that an American church kind of assumes is that you would show up and sit in the chair on Sunday morning. And then anything else you do would just be icing on the cake. This is not how we learned love from Christ. Remember again how he puts this in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That is the fruit that he's looking for. How do I know if I'm really abiding in the love of Christ? I will bear fruit if I'm abiding in Christ. And if I'm abiding in the love of Christ, I will bear fruit that resembles the love of Christ as well. And my life will no longer be so important to me that I can't let interruptions happen, that I can't prioritize other people because I have to prioritize myself. Jesus promises, church, that you're going to find joy as you lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. But it's not simply to say that you would take a bullet for them because in some ways that would be simpler, but, but you have to live day by day laying down your life, laying down your own priorities and putting the priorities of your brothers and sisters first. But we can't do that when the spoon handle is so long that we can't feed ourselves, right? We, we put that first. We put ourselves first. And we fall into this attitude of condemnation and of doubt. How do you really know Christ's love without expressing it? It's that same thing of what they say about when you're studying. Like You don't really know that you know something until you can teach it. And sometimes even after you teach it, it's like, I mean, goodness, Sunday morning, good grief. Uh, somebody said something about, oh, this is the thing you said in the sermon last week. And I'm like, I don't remember. What did I say? Was it good? Must have been good. You remembered it. I didn't remember it. 
Sometimes even after teaching, it doesn't mean that you understand it yet, but you have to embrace it. You have to put things in practice to truly know them, right? But if in my own heart, my own idea of paradise is me and just the people that I truly enjoy, then I'm a loveless, disobedient branch. Loveless living is contrary to friendship with Christ, to what he said here, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Not do what I command you and become my friends, but my friends are the ones who bear the fruit of obedience, who are abiding in love and therefore walking in obedience. But loveless living is contrary to friendship with Christ, and it's actually a result of worldly selfishness, of indeed abiding in other branches that cannot truly satisfy, even though the whole message of our culture around us is, here's how you can find satisfaction. It's no wonder it's so easy to kind of wander over and try to connect to a false vine. I'm going to go to James chapter 4 now, if you'd like to look at that with me for a moment. Verses 1 through 4. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This is a really good question because this is basically the opposite of abiding in the love of Christ, right? Quarrels and fights among Christians. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You are my friends if you do what I command you, if you abide in my love. But we cannot maintain our friendship with Christ and our friendship with the world. And church, that's becoming more clear every single day, is it not? Do you not see the opposition of the world around you? In one sense, it's absolutely true that opposition has always been there. But there are moments where you kind of sit back and you go, man, I don't know if I said this last week, so I'm going to run the risk. But I remember when I first became a believer thinking, okay, great, the world's going to hate me. I don't care. Bring it on. I trust Christ. Well, now, years later, I'm married, I have kids, I have a job, I have a house, all these things that connect me to this world that, boy, there's more of a cost now, and it's kind of shocking to hear some of the things that are coming out of our culture that are so anti-Christ. I'm not saying that there is an anti-Christ out there that I can identify, but the spirit of anti-Christ, John tells us in 1 John, you can look this up later, the spirit of Antichrist or the attitude or the, the nature of that kind of opposition is around us all the time. Church, you live in a world that is opposed to what you're trying to do if you are trying to abide in the love of Christ. It would much rather you be a loveless, disobedient branch. But true branches will return to the call to do what Christ calls us to do. And what is it? It calls us to abide, abide in love. And this is what makes it so hard because it's very easy for us as Christians in the culture that we live in to just set up our fences and our barricades and say, this is what we believe, and if you don't, then get out. That is not the spirit of Christ, church. How easy is it for us to just say, let's build a division between us and the world and act like they're not even here? How opposed to the mission of Christ is that? 
And yet we do it in all sorts. We've we got to protect our children. We've got to protect our, our Sunday morning service. We gotta, there's, there's times that we do need to protect, but we can't let protection be our main goal. Love has to be the main goal, and it has to start with other believers. Abiding in Christ's love, which is not also a, a concoction of our own efforts. It's not saying, I'm going to show Christ how much I'm really worth. I'm going to obey him so well. I'm going to show up to church every time there's an event. I'm going to go to every D group. I'm going to read my Bible all day long. I'm going to do all these kinds of things. It's not the attitude of joy. That's the attitude of legalism. That's the attitude of trying to prove something to God. Christ's already proven everything that we need to know about him to us. We need to be careful of these kinds of attitudes that would lead us away from the commandment to abide in the love of Christ. Because those branches that come out of the love of Christ, whether for pride or for self-promotion or for self-protection, remember, Jesus makes it clear, the vine dresser comes in, takes off those branches and throws them away into a fire. The Bible says that fire is eternal. You don't get a second shot after this. You will either stay connected to Christ or you will never be connected with Christ. This is a sheep and goats kind of issue. And that's what Jesus is getting to with this, that, that we will be able to tell what the visible church and the invisible church really is. Do you remember that from last week? The visible church is just who we see doing churchy things, but the invisible church is who truly are abiding in Christ, who are truly transformed by his word. And we do need to be visible with our love. But we need to see to it that we are a part of not just what the world might call the church, but who Christ calls his church. So we might be part of the visible church, but we need to be part of the invisible, the true church of Christ. And Jesus has secured this for us because he shows us the greatest act and source of love at the cross. And this is our remedy for loveless, fruitless seasons. Come back to the cross. Guess what? It's the same thing I say every single Sunday. Remember that illustration from the Talmud of the spoons too long to feed themselves? Well, the story goes on because then the character is taken up into heaven and he sees a very similar scene. Only the men sitting around the table are all healthy and plump and happy. They have the exact same spoons, the exact same food. But can you guess what the difference is? They're feeding each other. They figured it out. The reason the spoon is so long is because there's somebody across the table from me. Now listen, that is a very sweet story, but that's all that is because there's an essential ingredient that's missing and the essential ingredient is Christ because the, the Talmud story is saying somebody one day finally said, oh, you know what we can do with these long spoons? Well, I have no idea. Open your mouth. Well, oh, wow, food, great enlightenment. I've discovered the answer. I've solved the riddle. The puzzle is complete. Oh, church, we're not going to figure out how to love one another. We need to be taught how to do so. The vine must be cut back in order to bear branches. He calls us his friends because he has made us his friends. He has brought us into the love relationship between the Father and the Son. Look at, if you will, or just listen. Feel free either way at this point. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. One of my favorites. So good. Paul prays that 
Christ may dwell in the hearts of the church through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, perhaps another way of saying abide in my love from Christ, Paul says, you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. You're not going to sit around a church table one day and realize, oh, we just haven't been doing this right. I finally figured it out. No, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. Christ is the essential ingredient in this story because left to ourselves, we're all doomed to be trying to feed ourselves and ignore everyone else around us. This is not to say that salvation is the realization of the commandment. It's the realization of what Christ has done in our place that he's fulfilled the command of God for us. Paul prays this way, and so should we. And, and look again at our passage for this morning. What are we called to do yet again? Five or six times you can count this in the Gospel of John, where Jesus tells us to pray. I've appointed you that you may go, your fruit, fruit may, may abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you should never be shy about asking God something in prayer because Jesus has told us not to be. Whatever you wish. Remember, it starts with abide in my love. He doesn't start the teaching and saying, hey, guess what? Did you know you can ask God for whatever you want and all you have to do is believe and then he'll give it to you? Abide in my love. And as you're doing that, don't think that God is saying, all right, you've gotten the instructions, now figure it out. Continue, remain abiding in prayer. We need to abide in that thought even, to marinate in it, to refresh ourselves on the willingness of God to answer prayer because he was willing to offer his own son in your place. To think that God would say, hey, look, I've already given you Jesus. Can you just leave me alone and stop asking me for stuff? And that is heresy. That is, that is a, a deception. Because Jesus makes it so clear that he wants us to live a life of prayer in response to this abiding in love. Nothing of this world will be in this healthy branch because it's not attached to that unhealthy worldly vine. The, the branch that abides in the true vine abides in prayer, abides in love, abides in joy and obedience. So yesterday... We were walking through the parking lot and my five-year-old's jumping around and she holds my hand. And as we're doing this, which is not a good thing to do in a parking lot in the first place, so I'm already kind of like, oh. And then we kind of like landed in a pothole and I sprained my ankle like three times when I was running in high school. High school was a long time ago, if you can't tell. Um, and so I've already kind of got this aversion to be like, anytime I almost roll my ankle, like I'm already, oh boy, don't do that. And so, so I had a little moment of, stop. Hold my hand and walk through the parking lot. Sorry, 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 sorry. We get in the car. I'm buckling her in. Tears are already in her eyes. And I'm like, what now? You were the one that did this in the first place. But then her words broke my heart. And I've heard them a dozen times before. Do you still love me? I was like, you little. But it, it, it softened me. It reminded me. My daughter needs to be reminded that I love her because sometimes it doesn't look like I do. I hate that. I don't want that to be true, but I get it. 
Our kids need to be reminded that we love them. They need to be reminded that we love them not because they're obedient or because they bring us joy or because we've decided that they are our idol of joy or are our fulfillment, but rather because we have we've been made their parents. We've been put in charge of them. Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. This is what I needed to tell my five-year-old yesterday. I chose you. I picked you. I made you my friend. This is what's so great about divine election. It's not, so many people just throw this doctrine away because they go, oh my goodness, election, that means that some people are chosen by God, but then other people are not chosen by God. That's not the purpose of that doctrine. We don't know how or why God chooses and doesn't choose. What we do know is that when Jesus says, I chose you, he does it for the purpose of encouragement. My daughter's sitting there genuinely wondering if I love her. And I want to be like, what do I have to do to prove to you that I love you? I mean, Goodness, I feed you, I give you a home, I do all these things, right? Maybe you're like that child this morning, though, and wondering, does God actually love me? He calls us to abide in his love. He calls us friends, so we're free from performance, we're free from production. He's chosen us, so we're free from pride, and we're free from insecurity, too. In Christ, we have all that it takes to walk in these commandments, to love other branches, and therefore to abide in joy as well. So J.C. Ryle says this, Um, God has linked together holiness and happiness. And what God has joined together, we must not think to put asunder. So don't let your attitude before the Lord become one of stale, stone-faced obedience because you want to make sure that you don't get lost or connected to another vine, but rejoice. Holiness and happiness are linked together. Holy living for Christ, happiness and joy over what he's done at the cross for us. My Christian life is doing well or is not doing well based on how I order what Christ has said here then. Because he says again, abide in my love, you will be obedient, you'll keep my commandments, and then my joy will be full in you. Now think about this, loveless branches won't be obedient. Disobedient branches won't find joy. Joyless branches aren't abiding in love. All these things are linked together, and they're linked together in that order. And that's what Jesus shows us at the cross. So we need to bear the fruit of love for our friends as Christ has loved us and brought us into friendship with him. In 15, 17, Jesus says, I command you these things so that you will abide in my love. I wonder if we would do it otherwise. Or so, right, sorry, excuse me. He says, so that you will love one another. And I I really wonder if he didn't command it, if it was just a suggestion, if it was just a, hey, if you want to make this Christian life thing to be better, I think we wouldn't do it. This is hard, isn't it? So Christ says, I'm commanding you to do this. Friendship and the love of the Godhead is our proper motivation to go, to bear that fruit. Friendship with Christ, friendship with the Father, united by the Spirit, the one who is our helper, filling up our joy to overflow in love for others. So I have three questions for you at the end of this. Are we praying for more love or more fruit in our lives? If not, why does Jesus keep on telling us, pray, keep praying, ask, you'll receive? Are we praying for more love or fruit in our lives? Secondly, am I rightly receiving and abiding in the love of Christ? Have I got those things in the right order? Love produces obedience, results in joy. I guess I should do that the other way. Love produces obedience and results in joy. 
Am I rightly receiving and abiding in the love of Christ? Lastly, are we taking the opportunities we are given to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters? John says, the same author in his letter, 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that Christ died in our place, that Christ laid his life down for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If this is the measure of obedient love in Christ's love, his great love, greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friend, then that means I owe a debt of love to each and every one of you, everyone in Christ, until my very last breath. This doesn't end when I've done that great deed because I'll never compare to what Christ has done. So I need to live a lifestyle of selfless love to my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the debt that I owe. Lastly, here from First, I'm sorry, Second Samuel. A lot of scripture references this Sunday. I hope they were helpful. But this one, oh, love this one. Do you remember Mephibosheth? Yeah? I see all those heads nodding. Yep. Mm -hmm. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, you see in verses 1 through 9 this story. David has just become king. His enemy Saul, who has been the king for so long, and even during a time when David was supposed to be king, he'd already been anointed, but he hadn't taken a position yet. Saul has been defeated, but David is not hateful towards Saul. First, because Saul was anointed by God to take the position of king, and David knew that God was in charge of the timing of his transition to king. Secondly, David loved Saul because he loved Jonathan. Jonathan was his best friend, and Jonathan was Saul's son. Sadly, in the battle that ended the life of Saul, Jonathan's life was ended as well. But David did not forget him. He asked his servants, Is there anyone left from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? So he sends his servants to find someone. They say, hey, there's this guy named Mephibosheth. He's crippled in his feet. But he is the son of Jonathan. And you might imagine that some other people around watching this happen, they're thinking, oh, is David going to take out Mephibosheth? Because he's a threat to the throne, right? No. In verses 7 and 8 of 2 Samuel 9, we see this. David said to him, do not fear I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. You shall eat at my table always. And he, Mephibosheth, paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? This is the friendship that Christ has offered us. This is David picturing Christ's offer to us. We are Mephibosheth, caught in our sin, dead in our trespasses and sins. This is the great love that he has shown to us that we might show to one another. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Father, this morning, would you grant us by your spirit the ability to walk in love, to abide in love, and to bear fruit that reflects the greater love that Christ has shown us at the cross. Pray this for your glory, for our good and unity in Christ.